Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 436. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what is coming in today's show. First up is a little interview I did with Jeffrey A. Landis. Now Jeffrey, as you know, is a fantastic science fiction writer. But he also, you know, fact articles galore out there. And I've seen one where he wrote about what would happen if you got blown out of an airlock. And I thought, oh, what actually does happen? So I've got a little interview with Jeffrey all about that. What happens when you get blown out of an airlock? What happens to all sorts of things? The main fiction is A Shout is a Prayer for the Waiting Centuries by T.R. Napper. Then we have Looking Back at Genre History, which is part two, Amy's part two of the Star Trek Arthurian legend. That's, if you remember, a month ago when Amy did the first part. So that is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, we've all watched the, the Hollywood films where certain things happen in space and we take it for granted that... You know, you, you might you might boil in space, you might freeze in space. You know, there's always accidents happening in the movies in space, and you just take it for granted that actually what you're seeing on the on the screen there, oh, well, that probably could happen. Do you know? But I wanted to kind of just dig in a little bit. I seen this article wrote by Jeffrey Landis, Jeffrey A. Landis. There, great science. When we've actually played some of Jeffrey's stories on the show there, and I wanted to just ask Jeffrey some of these questions. You know, would you if you take your helmet off in Mars or Venus? Would you boil to to to, to bits? You know, or uh, would what would happen if you, your ship did explode in space? You know, it's a vacuum. It's the flames. What would actually happen? Do you know what I mean? These are questions, you know, to save mankind. So, Jeff, now it looks like Arnie in Total Recall got it wrong. We wouldn't boil. Is that the case? Yes, that's more or less true. If we went into vacuum, it certainly would not be a good thing to do, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, but it turns out you don't freeze or boil or explode immediately. It takes uh, more than a few seconds of vacuum exposure to kill a person. I was going to, because you say that Arthur C. Clarke, basically in his kind of, in 2001, he, you know, that death scene, he got that pretty much close to the mark. Yes. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, as it turns out, uh, was a pretty sharp cookie on getting the science right. In fact, he uh, first did, uh, much before that, he did a, a short story about uh, what happens if you're exposed to vacuum. That was way back in 1957. 
and he did his research and uh, and got it pretty much right. So let's the, the scenario then, Jeff. I'm in space, and for whatever reason, I want to take I take my helmet off. How huh. long? How long will I survive? Well, I think that would be a pretty poor thing to do. <laughs> so I certainly do not recommend it. Uh, but you would go unconscious pretty quickly uh, because with no oxygen uh, in your lungs, the blood would become deoxygenated very quickly. So your brain would shut down with the lack of oxygen, but you won't die immediately. Uh, you do have, well, you're a, a pressure vessel yourself a little bit. Your skin is going to hold some pressure in. So on the inside, you won't be totally depressurized. You won't be exploding into the vacuum. So you'd live for probably about 90 seconds, uh, give or take, and this will vary from person to person. Uh, so if somebody can pull you inside quickly enough and uh, resuscitate you, you'd have a good chance of surviving. Right. So even, like, say, let's say 90 seconds, you, you wouldn't be kind of brain damaged or anything like that? You'd, you'd probably survive? Well, the longer you go, the worse it's going to be for you. But yes, yeah, up to uh, 60, 90 seconds, right. you would be, uh, you'd probably be okay. So just out of curiosity as well, how are we getting this data? Do you know, I know you're kind of, you know, the, the facts and figures would, you know, surely we're not kind of doing any tests on astronauts, you know, not for the kind of death ones, but we surely we're not doing any tests anywhere like that, are we? Well, no, uh, you certainly don't want to expose people to vacuum on purpose. Uh, oddly enough, though, it has been done by mistake from time oh, to time. right. There are, of course, cases of people uh, being in high-altitude aircraft, but high-altitude aircraft isn't quite in vacuum. But there was one case in 1966 when a technician at the NASA Johnson Space Center, NASA Houston, uh, was doing a spacesuit test and uh, had an accident and was completely exposed to vacuum. Right. And actually quite a uh, quite an amazing story. Uh, but he lost consciousness in maybe 12 or 15 seconds. Uh, but the rest of the test crew saw that this happened and immediately, uh, you know, brought him back to full pressure. Uh, so he was exposed to vacuum for about... 30 seconds or so, and uh, he regained consciousness, and uh, that was fine. He was not, uh, was not, uh, you know, was not long-term engine at all. Right, right. And did we get, like, a lot of data from that accident, or was that just, like, a kind of one-off and, you know, we, we kind of learned the lessons from it? Well, that was a one-off, and I think they made absolutely sure <laughs> to... Uh, not do that again. Risk uh, assessment after that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, you say, do not, do not want to do do that again. Uh, and of course, they gave him artificial respiration. Uh, they didn't. Uh, he didn't recover all by himself. You needed. Uh, you needed the emergency medical technicians there. Uh, right. Right. You know, starting and breathing again. Wow, nineteen sixty-six, the year of my birth as well. There, <laughs> yes, yeah. And I should say that there have been other cases where people have been exposed to vacuum uh, by accident, uh, and it's taken longer than that to bring them back to 
to pressure and they have not survived. So oh, right, have, right. We have both cases. We have people who have survived and also people who have not survived. Right. So right. you really want to work pretty fast. You want to get back uh, back into pressure within a minute, maybe 90 seconds at the at the most. So, you know, you, you, you said there we, we wouldn't boil, we wouldn't do the Arnie Schwarzenegger and boil on the surface of Mars, but we always see quite a lot of kind of the movies as where there's like frost or we would freeze. Is that not the case neither? Uh, well, in the long term, uh, you may freeze. And interestingly enough, you may heat up. That depends on where you are in space. Uh, for To start with, you are going to tend to get cold because human beings have a lot of water on their skin, and it's going to start evaporating when you're exposed to space. You're going to get that evaporative cooling, just like when you sweat and your sweat evaporates. Uh, it cools you down. Uh, but you're not going to really freeze. Space isn't cold. Space doesn't really have any temperature at all. It's like being in a thermos. Uh, so you don't, it's not like being shoved into a refrigerator. Right. Uh, depending on where you are, if you're in the sunlight, in fact, you might even heat up uh, in the long term. But so, no, you're not going to freeze solid. Uh, mostly you'll sort of stay the same temperature with the exception of that fact that you get that evaporative cooling. So your your sweat is very effective uh, uh, in a vacuum. What, and I'm just going to, you know, a knock on a question. Would we decompose if we were out there or, you know, if you're kind of in the, just your skin, you know, if you were the kind of just a normal clothes, would you decompose or would you just float around forever in a day? You know, it's kind of, no. it's like a frozen pack of meat. <laughs> yeah, you'd probably get very little decomposition uh, because, of course, the bacteria in your body are not going to be particularly happy about the de about the decompression either. That will take a while, but over the very long term, of course, the water in your body is going to diffuse out into the vacuum. Right. So in the very long term, you're going to dry out. Uh, and at that point, you're not going to get any more decomposition because the uh, bacteria in your body that would cause you to decompose uh, aren't going to be surviving either. They're going to be desiccated and you'll uh, basically sort of be a space mummy. <laughs> now, there's a title for a movie for you. <laughs> what about then, because I, I was reading, like, you wrote this article. It was just fascinating, to be quite honest. It's just like the, it made you, you know, the the wonder and the what-ifs, you know. And you also mentioned about having a puncture in a space suit. Now, what would happen there? Would there be kind of, you know, like a kind of the backfill pressure of your suit keeping it together if you had like a tear in it? Or would it just rip open to the, to the vacuum? Well, they do try to make space suits out of ripstop material so that if you get a little tear in the suit, the tear won't keep opening up until you completely uh, rip open the suit. Of course, that would be bad, and the people designing spacesuits are, are pretty conscious of the fact that, well, we don't really want to have uh, big, big openings. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, there was a case uh, where an astronaut actually had a puncture uh, in a suit. Uh, that was astronaut Jay Apt on flight uh, STS-37, 37th flight of the space shuttle, uh, a palm restraint, and one of the gloves uh, had a puncture. 
Uh, and it turns out uh, the astronaut didn't even know it. It well, wasn't well, until uh, they got back down, until they got, got back in the spacesuit, at least, into the spaceship, uh, where he noticed that there was a, a, a little hole in the glove. And oddly enough, uh, just a little bit of bleeding actually sealed the opening. Uh, enough that the spacesuit was not leaking. Right. Oh, so he actually cut himself and his blood made the the seal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Man. And he didn't even know about that, did he not? Didn't even know. I guess there's so much adrenaline and so much excitement in a spacewalk that, uh, you know, a little bit of minor pain in your hand is uh, <laughs> is not too exciting. If we kind of move it up a, a step then, Jeffrey, and we've got, like, say, a hole in the ship. Let's just say the size of a football. You know, is it, like, again, like the movies where the, the, all the kind of clutter of the inside of the ship goes screaming towards that hole because of the vacuum? It takes quite a while, oddly enough, to decompress a big volume uh, in order to completely decompress it. So you have some time. Uh, what will happen, actually, is that actually right next to the hole, the air rushing through the hole will be rushing out uh, pretty much at the speed of sound. The air goes very fast uh, through that hole. But once you get a little bit further away, uh, well, a big pressure vessel, if you have a big spaceship that has uh, a lot of volume in it, it takes quite a while for the pressure to drop, uh, you know, even through a, a hole that's the size of a, a soccer ball. Uh, I wouldn't say that you'd want to ignore that. You're going to have to work pretty fast to say, well, we got to plug that hole. Uh, but it's not going to drop you down to vacuum instantly. Right, right. So, but eventually it would kind of, it would, you know, kind of level itself out and become a vacuum, would you get sucked towards that hole just before that, or would it just become this kind of a gradual vacuum in that area? There's going to be a strong wind pulling you toward that hole. And the closer you are to the hole, the more that wind is going to be. So if you're right next to the hole, it's going to be pretty unstoppable. If you're within a meter or two of a, a big hole, well, you're going to be in... in <laughs> Uh, pretty much deep trouble. It's going to be pulling you toward the hole. We need we need to know these we need to know these facts, though, Jeff. You never know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's. Uh, but as long as you're further away from the hole, you'll be able. To, it'll just be a wind. It won't be a uh, irresistible force. And again, just, I mean, final question, because I'd like to say it's just, it's nice just to talk these scenarios through. You know, when we, we see like a ship in space and an explosion and there's flames and everything, would, that I guess wouldn't happen. There would be no fire in, in space. Am I right? Or am I totally wrong with that one? Well, there is fire in space inside the ship. And that's something NASA worries about a lot. Right. Uh, partly because, of course, they had an accident with a fire inside a spaceship. Back in 1968, the spaceship was still on the ground, but it turned out to be a, a catastrophic event. So NASA worries a lot about fires, but the fire would be on the inside. Once it decompresses to vacuum, of course, the fires are all going to go out. And the pictures you see in the movies of these flames and 
burning spaceships really are not very accurate. On the outside, there's you're not going to see any fires. Uh, in the vacuum, the fires are going to go out pretty quickly. So I'm guessing you would see the explosion, you know, metal getting ripped all over, but there would be no flame with that, or it quickly die now because that would be the inside. Yes, in Hollywood, it's just not impressive enough. <laughs> uh, when you have something blowing up, you want to see fire and smoke and flames and orange stuff. Uh, in space, probably the explosions would be much less visible. Right. Uh, you'd just see the thing coming apart and it would be silent uh, and not even very flashy. It would just be a sort of an, oh my God, that spaceship just blew up. Just getting back to, to NASA there. So what are they kind of putting in place? You know, like you say, it's obviously it's like one of the greatest fears there for, you know, to, for a fire on a ship. What are they putting in place? What, you know, methods have they got? Well, the first thing is that we worry a lot about making sure that nothing inside the spacecraft is likely to burn. Uh, and fires in space, oddly, are very, very different than fires on Earth, because on Earth you see the flame and the flame goes up. But in space there isn't any up. And what that means is that when something burns, you don't have the fresh air coming in to fill in behind. So flames are very small, and they stick to the surface, but they can spread out. They spread out slowly. So the first rule, of course, is make sure there isn't something that's going to burn. And the second rule, something that we discovered in 1968, is, you know, it seems like it's a good idea to make your atmosphere in the spacecraft pure oxygen but that turns out to be a really really dumb idea because <laughs> things burn very quickly in pure oxygen so we've gone back to a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen in spacecraft jeff you've just it's it's been great to just have a little chat with you there just about these kind of scenarios because we all take it for granted and i think we all kind of get sucked into the hollywood you know, way of thinking that it's the big explosions and the flames and everything, but in reality, it's a little bit more from the outside looking in a bit mundane. Yeah, it's not more mundane, but it's different from Earth. Uh, everything in space is different, but it's still quite catastrophic if you want to put a big hole in a spacecraft. So. Oh, exactly. Jeff, it's been lovely having you on. Thank you so much for just kind of enlightening into this kind of area of, of space exploration. Thank you. Well, thank you as well. There you go. Big thank you to Jeffrey. And actually, out of them all, actually, I thought the one, you know, the, 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 the spaceship, the, you know, the blown up in space and the flames in, in space in a vacuum, I thought that was the interesting one, do you know? Quite, you, you think you know it, you know what I mean? You kind of let down these rabbit holes of the movies and you just take it for granted. But, you know, there is little kind of subtle differences. And, and that one particularly, you know, I found interesting. Do you know what I mean? It's not these big, huge explosions of flames everywhere. Yes, inside it's all going pear-shaped, you know, but on the outside, it's not so startling. I mean, the flames get vanquished straight away so i hope you enjoyed that big thank you jeff thank you so much sir so next up is the main fiction a shout is a prayer 
for the Waiting Centuries by T.R. Napper. I'll give you a little heads up about T.R. Napper. T.R. Napper's short fiction has appeared in Asimov's Interzone, several issues, Grimdark Magazine and several others. He is a Writers of the Future winner and has been nominated for a Dittmar Awards. T.R. Napper has spent the last decade living and working through the Southeast Asia. His website is here and there's a link on there, nappertime.com. And you can find him on Twitter, Darkling Earth. This story was originally published in Interzone 258. And it's narrated by Jonathan Sharp. Jonathan just pushing out some great ones. Jonathan lives and works in the sleepy southern New Mexico town alongside his exceedingly talented wife Paige. When he is free from the mountains of organic vegetables which under he works, he plays in front of the microphone in the hope that one day... It'll talk back to him. In addition to Starship Sofa, he has been up-and-coming stories. He has, should I say, up-and-coming stories on the District of Wonder podcasts. Tears to Terrify and Far-Fetched Fables. Jonathan, sir, lovely to have you back on. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present... A Shout is a Prayer for the Waiting Centuries by T.R. Napar Read by Jonathan Sharp give you a roll of barbed wire, a vine for this modern epoch, climbing all over our souls. That's our love. Take it. Don't ask. Any food? asked Fung. No food, replied the woman. Rice? Old rice? Bamboo shoots? Anything? No food. I have a child. We haven't eaten in two days. We all have children. Here, take some water. Fung reached out in the darkness. A smooth, cool wooden ladle caressed her hand. She fumbled for the bucket, filled the scoop with water, and held it out for her daughter, who grabbed it and slurped noisily. Fung felt for Trung and passed the scoop to him. He rested his hand on her shoulder as he drank. Her skin tingled at his touch, familiar yet always new. Then she took her turn, cracked lips and swollen tongue welcoming the cool stream of water. Her eyes adjusted to the dark as they drank. Further along, someone had a battery-powered lamp, its thin glow enough to paint the outline of those hiding in the rough-ceilinged room underground. Women and children, not many men, not many of those left, not many young women of fighting age either. The woman who'd passed her the water had an AK-47 slung over her shoulder. A sheen of polished metal gleamed in outline. How long has the bombing lasted, older sister? asked Fung. Hard to count, said the woman. Her face was impassive, drawn. Two days, maybe three. The free waves jammed, nanos unusable. Time's different down here. Thunder rumbled in the distance, long, growing. They are coming, whispered the woman. Get down. They did. Huddled together, pressed against the dirt floor, covering the child with their bodies. Fung hugged her daughter, who was so good, so quiet. Three years old and never complained, never cried. Trung, his lean arms around his wife, holding them both. The storm came. None of them could take their eyes off the meat. Sizzling, marinating, tantalizing, just lying there within reach, in rows of silver frying pans. The head chef, tall white hat askew, 
loitered nearby like a buff mastiff over a fresh bone, growling at any of the staff who came too close. Behind the chef, behind the others, all around were invisible cameras with eyes cool and unblinking, watching the rows of meat, ensuring the integrity of each rare, tender morsel. George Dungari let his eyes linger, like everyone else, as he passed through the kitchen. He straightened the white jacket they'd given him as he walked, too tight across the shoulders, too much room around the waist. He moved through the bustle, the swarm of waiters, waitresses, and assistant chefs, and despotic minor managers bustling around the gleaming clean-still kitchens. They made room for him back here, all of them. Back here, they knew who he used to be. Out there, they didn't give a damn. George took a deep breath, face carefully blank, and walked into the ballroom. From the heat and the hustle of the kitchens to the leisurely orbiting souls in the cool, crisp air of the grand ballroom. It was brighter out here. Everything was brighter. The gowns and the suits and the glowing, flawless skin, and most of all, the teeth. The straight, even rows of designer teeth. Each a symmetrical stanza, a polished white tribute to the wealth and standing of the owner. Somewhere, classical music played, while the guests circled each other with their empty smiles and polite nods that only truly rich could perfect. Their conversations like stones briefly skipping across the surface of their narcissism, across some tantalizing reveal of the wonder of their own identity, before they departed to a new group to skim their stones across. To a new group with ready, vacant smiles, each waiting politely for their turn to speak about themselves. George picked up a tray and plotted a careful course through. It held Australian sparkling wine and Belgian beer and Californian cider, together worth a week's pay, maybe two. George eased his way through fragments of conversation, offering the drinks to those who caught his eye. The color is divine, vermilion? My concern is nanotech diversity and we've got to wait days. George paused as a woman with superfluous eyelashes signaled to him. She was talking to a man attempting a regal bearing. She said to the man, Then the waitress served me the bluefin sashimi and my husband the wagyu beef. That, professor, is the sort of everyday prejudice that sadly still exists. She paused to pluck a glass of champagne from the tray and continued talking. She didn't look at George. He slipped away unnoticed, a ghost haunting the lives of the living. For environmental reasons, converting home theater to a... Thinking of having a new face printed for my birthday. Have you seen the new... Vinyasa, treated to the foothills of Ubud, comes on wide to the palette now, doesn't it? Waiter! You there, waiter! George slowed, the automation of his drink delivery disturbed. He looked around to see a woman and a man both tall and attractive in the most standard and forgettable of ways, looking at him. The man smiled. George couldn't help but stare at his teeth. They shimmered in the lights of the ballroom, hovering in space like a Cheshire cat's. The woman had a matching disingenuous smile and a red dot on her forehead, between her eyes. The latest token of this mob's faddish spiritualism, he figured. The man was saying something. Sorry? asked George. I said sighed the man, apparently irritated having to repeat himself. I'd like a double of single malt and some French champagne for my partner. George held out the tray so she could take a flute of the sparkling. The man's eyes narrowed. French champagne, not the insipid Australian version, and a double of single malt whiskey, and make damn sure it's Ilive, the best this place has. His wife suppressed a laugh. 
obviously the way people do when you see them pretending to be polite, when her man said insipid Australian version. George thought about a straight right to the bridge of the man's nose, the spurt of blood, the roar of the crowd. Instead he nodded, right away. And so the night continued, the rich exercising their prodigious appetite for expensive alcohol and food, and the remainder servicing those appetites. There was a lull sometime after nine and George sat down on one of the plastic crates near the kitchen's exit, prying off his shoes with a relieved internalized groan. The shoes he'd borrowed from his neighbor were too narrow for his feet, the soles worn and thin. He leaned back against the warm polycrete wall and closed his eyes. A commotion a half minute later made him open them again. A waitress was walking between benches, tray of plates in hand, a half dozen waitstaff crowded behind her. When she dumped the tray near the sinks, the crowd increased. George slipped his shoes back on and walked over, pushing through the mob. Sitting on one of the plates was rump steak, half eaten. It filled the air with the scent of its iron-rich opulence. The young waitress, with pretty eyes and crooked teeth, she tried to hide by never smiling, turned to the chef nearby. Can we eat it? she asked. He nodded. The contracts are lax here. They don't cover garbage. Who gets it? She asked, and it was clear she wanted it to be her. Everyone standing there wanted it. The chef looked around at the staff. I don't care, just as long as you don't stand around staring at it all fucking night. I want the wait staff out of my kitchen now. He turned without waiting for a reply and moved along the bench to where a line of chocolate and truffle desserts were being created by keenly focused young chefs. It's mine, said George. He didn't have a loud voice. In fact, Newing always accused him of mumbling, but everyone heard him. The girl with the crooked teeth made a thin line with her mouth and turned her eyes to the floor. The others backed away. As George grabbed the plate, someone said, Now just a minute there. George turned and looked down at one of the managers, Bill or Brian or something. Young had a habit of giving superfluous instructions to those who knew their work a lot better than he did. The young manager's smooth face started to redden. I, m- I mean, you can't just take it. He didn't say it strong, didn't attach himself to the words, just surrendered the sentence to the air. George looked him in the eye. The man looked away. George turned without a word, plate in hand, and pushed his way through the back door, twenty pairs of eyes glaring at his back. The still, dry heat of the night hit him as he exited. Quiet outside. Just the low whine of a hydrogen generator in the distance. A barking dog. Overhead, he imagined he could hear the Milky Way as it flowed, and the call of the Larpon, looking for passengers to take the Baral cool. George moved along the wall to a plastic chair that had been placed under a circle of pale white from the lone overhead bulb. He held the plate up, nostrils flaring as he inhaled the scent of the half-eaten meat. He placed the plate carefully on his knees and used a knife and fork to slice off a neat triangle of steak, pink in the center, brown on the outside, slathered in some sauce so rich he would have drunk a cup of it if he could. He bit down, eyes closing in the pleasure as the juices lapped over his tongue, bathed his gums. As he chewed, his stomach jumped in anticipation. He groaned. Laughter, or more tittering you'd call it, dragged his attention away. A woman and a man stood a few meters away watching him from the shadows. 
The woman wore an elegant gown that exposed soft white shoulders that gleamed under the stars. The tips of their cigarettes glowed orange in the night. They stepped forward to the circle of light. The man looked at him with contempt, the quiet curl of disdain in lip and eye. The woman, her expression was worse, much worse. Pity. Like she just found an abandoned puppy by the side of the road. The disdainful one said to his friend as though George weren't even there, They let them eat our leftovers here? Disgusting. Oh, Xavier, said the other. She looked at George, nodding sympathetically as she asked, Hungry? George chewed the meat and swallowed. It wanted to stick in his throat on the way down. He couldn't taste the flavors anymore. The woman stepped closer again into the circle of light. It's not fair that you eat our scraps. She held out her little finger, showing three laser-inked dots on the tip. Let me give you a credit transfer. Go and buy yourself some fresh groceries. Something healthy. George stood, plate in hand. He was a head taller than her. Whatever she saw in his face, she didn't like. The film of fear running over her eyes. She backed up out of the light towards her friend. Maybe we should go, Xavier. He agreed. They threw down their cigarettes and left, walking fast. George stared down at the cigarettes, orange points pointing down on the polycrete, then the plate of half-eaten food still in his hand. He clenched and unclenched his jaw, felt the sting of shame on his cheeks, in his stomach. He threw the food in a nearby bin and went back to work. I'll give you a car bomb, a car bomb exploding on a crowded street. On a crowded street exploding flesh and bones. That's our festival, don't you understand? I'll give you a savage war. We can't live like this, husband. I know. Our daughter will die if this goes on. I know. Sweat coated their skin, dripped from the tips of their noses, rested salty on their lips. How her daughter slept, Fung couldn't understand. But she did as they sheltered under the bamboo floorboards, as the swarms of mosquitoes plagued them, and thunder, man-made, roared in the distance, as the scent of sweat and dirt, and the smell of something else that overlaid it all, ripe and dead, eddied in that space under the house, as the hunger plagued them, only tree bark to eat and still dirty water to drink, the gnawing in their stomachs unceasing, her daughter slept despite it all, Thin arms above her head, little fat lips, slightly parted. She slept. Then she trailed off, not wanting to know the answer. South, we'll keep going south, said Trun. His voice was soft and empty. We'll keep to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. There's nothing else. The war is everywhere, even there, especially there. I know a man. What man? We fought together. He has a boat. She sat in silence. Is that the only way? Fung asked. Yes. We have nothing to pay him with. I can pay him. What with? I can pay. What? What with? She repeated, quietly, her fear of his answer rising. Trung didn't give her one. He took his old army pistol from his canvas satchel and began to clean it. Just his eyes and the pistol shone in the dimness under the floorboards the dull eternal metal of the gun and the bright fleeting light of his eyes. 
Fung huddled her knees and watched her daughter sleep. George woke to opera, drifting down caverns and tunnels through the open front door, some old aria in a dead European language, echoing, resonating, enchanting. Old Mr. Nguyen loved his opera, and everyone else down here learned to love it too after a while. You could close the front door to the circulating air and early morning music if you really wished, but no one did. It was cool underground, still and silent at night. George had never slept well, but he slept like the dead down below. The temperature was constant, whether it was 25 degrees Celsius outside or over 50. Port Hedland was mostly over 50 these days. He lay in bed, savoring the first few seconds of the day when you forget who you are. Those few seconds before your feet hit the floor. Before the hard reality of the world comes crashing in. He swung from the bed, feet touching the cool stone floor. The walls, too, were sandstone, patterned swirls of maroon and rose left by the tunneling machines, easy, calming to the eye in the soft, clean light of the underworld. He walked out to the living area. Yo, Adrian, said George. Rocky, replied Nguyen, smiling at him. Nguyen, her black hair tied up, was wearing her white dental assistant uniform, the dress ending around the knees. Her full lips were wet from the tea she was drinking, and her eyes tired from another sleepless night with their daughter. Three years old, and Kylie still needed her mother to share the bed with her before she went to sleep. Eyes tired, but warm. Eyes that were a shield against the others and a window for George, and George alone. George walked over to his daughter, sitting up in the high chair, drinking from a plastic cup. He kissed her on the top of the head. Trouble, how are you? His daughter looked at him, put down her cup, and cocked her finger like a pistol. She blew a raspberry. George smiled. What was that? Fart gun, said Kylie in her squeaky little voice. She pointed it at him again and blew another raspberry. George grabbed his nose. Gah! He swayed, eyes rolling up in his head. Kylie giggled as he staggered from the small kitchen to the open lounge and collapsed onto the sofa. Blah! He played dead. Kylie laughed. Then he rose slowly from the sofa with arms outstretched and let out a zombie groan. Are you a monster? asked Kylie, eyes wide. George responded with a groan and lurched toward his daughter. She giggled and shot him again with her fart gun. George fell over and flopped around on the ground. Nguyen smiled. Okay, enough farting, you two. She put a bowl of soy porridge in front of Kylie. Now eat your breakfast. Kylie wrinkled her nose. Yuck. It's good for you. Stupid for me, but you can have it. Kylie tried to give her mother the bowl. Nguyen put it back in front of her. Andi! Kylie pouted. She picked up her tiny spoon and started poking the porridge with it. George walked back to the kitchen and poured himself some coffee. He sat at the small table with a sigh and sipped. Black, bitter, thin. He didn't know it any other way. Nguyen sat opposite. Their knees touched under the table. How was work? she asked. He shrugged. That bad? He sighed and sipped his coffee. That bad, she said, no longer a question. How much do teeth cost? Nguyen held her cup of tea in both hands. What do you mean, what sort of teeth? Rich prick teeth. George, she said, eyebrows raised. What's a prick? asked Kylie, distracted from her porridge shuffling. A naughty word, Kylie. Naughty daddy. 
Naughty Daddy, repeated Kylie, grinning at him. Naughty Daddy, he agreed. Now eat your breakfast. Kylie made another face and resumed poking the food with her spoon. Anyway, said George. Teeth? You don't want to know. Come on. She sighed. The basic treatment, straightened, whitened, and nano-hardened teeth, that costs a million. George started to swear, then caught himself. Instead, he repeated, A million? He grimaced, as though he were tasting something far more bitter than his coffee. It lasts a hundred years once it's done. No decay, no fillings, no cleaning, not ever. Nguyen sipped her tea. She laughed without humor and said, But that's just the basic model. You can implant a connection that stimulates the pleasure center of the brain. So you can have implants inside your teeth, fully programmable, that give you an endorphin kick, a cerebral orgasm whenever they sense you eating chocolate, for example. George shook his head. My boss told me about a job he did for a rich client, an executive from the free zones. His teeth were programmed to fire neurons in the part of his brain associated with hearing. When this guy ate a particular dish, some sort of steak, I think, he'd hear a symphony. What do you mean? I mean he ate music. They were silent. George looked at the scratched faux wood tabletop, the flavorless food in front of his daughter, and the white scars across his knuckles. I guess that's what happens when you give people too much money. A lot of wealthy people at the function last night, I take it? asked Newing. What do you reckon? Anyone famous? I don't know. Those people all look the same to me. White people? Rich people. She smiled. Tell me about it. I can't see past those perfectly symmetrical teeth. Yeah, George said, nodding in agreement. Same. I can't help staring. Sometimes the skin, that glows too, but usually just the teeth. So like I'm hypnotized. He pressed his tongue against the gap in his own teeth. George was lucky. His genes had given him a row of mostly straight, strong teeth. A bit yellowed from his days of smoking black market tobacco missing two halfway down one side of his mouth, by cuspids, Nguyen called him, from a fight down in Dampier when he'd lost his mouth guard halfway through the first round. But good teeth overall. Nguyen's teeth were perfect. White, small, straight. They had to be, of course. Couldn't have a dental assistant with a row of baked bean teeth. She was meticulous with them, brushing three times a day, flossing, buying an overpriced solution to wash her gums. They were both lucky as far as teeth went. Most of the people underground struggled with bad teeth and gum disease. Made it harder to find work. Service industry didn't like hiring people with bad teeth. Upset the customers, they said, and if you got rotten tooth and had to have it pulled, you were gone. The debt would crush you. Nguyen sighed, got up from her seat and went over to the small fridge. She pulled out a bowl and placed it in front of Kylie, taking away the uneaten porridge. Kylie squealed with pleasure as she looked into the bowl. George raised his eyebrow. Blueberries? Mr. Morrison owed me for going over his teeth a few weeks back. Nice. To her daughter, who was already shoving fistfuls of blueberries into her mouth, Nguyen said, Take the bowl down with you to the play area. I want to talk to Daddy. Kylie jumped down from her chair without a word and ran off smiling a blueberry smile, bowl in her hands. Mother will be over in thirty minutes, she said. George made a pistol out of his fingers, put the barrel against his temple, and blew the wet sound of flatulence. Just be thankful she's not living here. She's never going to live with us. In Vietnam, we're not in Vietnam. Nguyen started playing with her teacup, distracted. I'm sorry, babe, it's a small place, and your mother and I just don't get along. 
She likes you fine. It's not that anyway. Then what? She looked up at him. They're upping the rent again. Motherfuckers. Yeah, she said, motherfuckers. They sat in silence. She kept turning her teacup in her hands, eyes down. There's more? George asked. Okay, say what you want to say. She looked up at him with something approaching regret. You could get a government subsidy. His eyes went cold. No. You're entitled to it. No, he said firmly. George. Nguyen, how am I indigenous? I'm one quarter black and most people look at me and think I'm white. I never lived with my mob. I don't know the language and my tribe elders are all long dead. So tell me how am I indigenous? Does it matter? He didn't bother answering and she didn't try repeating the question. George let out a long breath and put his hand on hers. Maybe I could qualify for some more money. But it's imaginary money. It's all quarantined. Some bureaucrat asshole in an office somewhere deciding where every cent goes. I never see it. They even choose the food I eat in order to encourage a balanced diet, like I'm a child. He touched the cool metal of the cochlear implant behind his left ear. I take the money, the bastards will switch my geolocator on permanently. They'll scrutinize everything I do. Those people, Nguyen. I just can't. It would give us some room, some room to breathe, George. Not with that money. It would suffocate me living that way. She gripped his hand and sighed. I know, George, I know, I'm sorry. Maybe I can get the union started again. The union? She gave a short laugh. What country are you from? You start a union and the only thing you'll achieve is an extended stay in a political prison. We fall behind the rent, we'll end up in debtor's prison. I'm not sure I can tell the difference between the two. He paused, looking down at their hands. I could. He trailed off. Don't say it, George, don't say it. He looked up at her. I could fight again. She withdrew her hands from his. I'd rather you went to jail than fight again. Nguyen, no. She stood, her voice raised. She glanced over at Kylie and lowered her voice, whispering fiercely. Never again. Never again watching a live feed of you fighting some custom-built killer while 5,000 people scream for your blood. Alone in this house, six months pregnant, worrying my daughter's father was going to end up a vegetable or a cripple or dead. Her eyes glistened, but her mouth was firm, her voice strong. This family is staying together. No hospital beds, no prisons, no pointless self-sacrifice. You hear me, George Dulangari? She stared him down. He looked away. Yeah, he said, yeah. I'll give you twenty endless years. Twenty years, seven thousand nights of artillery. Seven thousand nights of artillery lulling you to sleep. Are you sleeping yet, or are you still awake? The spiders burst from the dirt floor of the cavern, each with a single eye glowing a fierce red in the center of its back and the terrifying ticka-taka-ticka-taka of their metal legs as they rubbed against each other. The cavern was dimly lit with sensi stones, absorbing the heat in the air and turning it into a dull orange light. Thirty refugees packed all against each other, thirty of them trying their best to ignore the smell and the heat and the cries of toddlers, until the spiders burst from the door. Then the screams started, first in fear, then in pain. Trun grabbed Fung's arm. She picked up their daughter. They didn't hesitate. They knew what the fist-sized spiders brought, agonizing death, slow and inevitable. One bite that caused a spreading necrosis of the flesh that no nanomed, 
no matter how powerful could halt. The Chinese called them the number 17 counterinsurgency device. The Vietnamese living underground had another name, Nu Hun Trung Kua, the Chinese kiss. Someone unbolted the door at the end of the cavern, and families were pushing through, bowed over to avoid hitting their heads on the roof. Trung shoved people out of the way and dragged Fung through the narrow doorway. Beyond a narrow low tunnel, they ducked and ran crab-like along the confined space. Trung barged into the back of an old man, knocking him to the ground. Fung tried to step around him but was being shoved from behind, her sandaled foot landing squarely on the old man's thin back. He let out a grunt of air as she pushed him into the dirt, and another as the next person stomped him as well. Fung didn't look back. She clutched her daughter and ran, chest heaving, breath hot in her throat, as Trung pulled her by the arm and the person behind jammed elbows into her back. She staggered. Trung dragged her upright. Darkness and screams, desperate pleading screams, echoing down the tunnel. And if the screams paused for a few moments, the tick-a-tack-a tick-a-tack-a unrelenting right behind them. Keep running, keep running. Her daughter didn't cry, just buried her head into Fung's shoulder and gripped her little arms around her shoulders. Trung looked back. Fear stained his face. They plunged onward in the darkness of the tunnel. There was no air down here in these catacombs they'd built. Claustrophobic in these dead spaces they called freedom. Fung gasped for breath. Her arms ached from holding her daughter. They ran towards a thin sliver of light, elbows scraping against the walls, heads banging into the ceiling. All the while behind them the screams and the tick-a-tack-a, tick-a-tack-a. They tumbled into another chamber, dimly lit by sensi stones. Three others were there, young women, chests heaving. Trung pointed his pistol back into the darkness of the tunnel and fired. Two, three, four times. The boom, 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 boom in the confined space, ear-splitting, enough to make her daughter finally cry out. Trung slammed the door closed, throwing a bolt across it. Fung put her daughter down and gasped, trying to regain her breath. There are people coming. You you can't close the door. Trung said nothing. Instead, chest heaving, he emptied the shell casings from his pistol, brass ringing against the floor, and reloaded it. Sweat stuck Fung's shirt to her back. Her daughter whimpered, clinging to her leg. The women in the room ignored them, moving towards another exit from the opposite wall. We can't close the door. People will be trying to escape. He looked up, a sheen of sweat on his thin face. Those spiders are attracted to warm bodies, he said quietly. They bite only once, then burn out their control core so they can't be reused by insurgents. What are you saying? He clicked the cylinder for the revolver in place. We need to keep moving. They'll dig through the earth around the door. What are you saying, Trung? Were you shooting at the spiders? Trung held her gaze. No. He moved to his daughter and picked her up with his free arm then followed the women out of the other door. Fung wiped the sweat from her eyes with the back of her hand. It was shaking. Those that shared the trail with them, the old and the very young mainly, were back there. She reached out, laid her fingertips on the small door for a few moments, the rough grain of the iron rubbing her fingertips. She breathed out and followed her family. George Long poured Patty the Greek three fingers of gin. Patty nodded his head at the end of the pour, picked up the tumbler and closed his eyes as he sipped the drink. His hand trembled. 
George went back to cleaning tall glasses with a white cloth and staring into the flashing neon sign above the slot machines. The cyclical tunes of the slots once an interminable distraction as he tried to take orders or simply stand for a few fleeting moments and quietly think were now habituated into the background noise. A few months working the day shifts at the Blue Gala and he barely noticed them anymore. Before noon, so the place was quiet. Just Patty up at the bar in his regular spot, taking his third gin of the morning, and the zombies at the slots, eyes glazed as the wheels turned and turned again, promising but never delivering the golden ticket to a new life. It didn't matter that they never really paid off, the patrons weren't there for the money, they were there to die the slow death of their addiction, until the shame and the debt buried them in the dead red earth. George was drawn from his reverie as the doors swung open and the blinding light of the morning sun split the gloom. As soon as the two men stepped off the bottom step, George knew there'd be trouble. He could always smell a fight coming, and these two reeked. They sauntered in, wearing Xiong original suits and white-topped patent leather shoes. One of the guys was big, and big everywhere. The shoulders, the arms, the thighs, the fists... He had a set of steel teeth glinting under the neon of the slots and a magnum-sized chin. The smaller guy was the boss, obviously. He wore black leather gloves and an air of insouciance and entitlement only the very rich can really replicate. He seemed vaguely familiar. George straightened. The boss man smiled at George and said something. George didn't hear it. He found himself distracted by the dazzle of the man's teeth. They seemed to glow with a blue hue in the dank underground of the bar. They sparkled, too, though covered in diamond shavings. "'Sorry, mate?' asked George. The man said, with a simulated patience and continuing smile, "'I said your best whiskey, my good man.' He sat down on a stool in front of George, passing his fedora to his man to hold. His man sat with his back to George, watching the barflies and slot addicts, doing his best imitation of what a bodyguard should do in a dingy bar. Up close, the boss man's eyes were bloodshot, and he reeked of cigarettes and booze. Down from the spires, no doubt. Slumming it in the dugouts, looking for the raw edge of existence long since rubbed out over in the right side of the tracks. George threw his white rag over his shoulder, grabbed a bottle from the shelf and poured two fingers of whiskey into a clean tumbler. He placed the glass and the whiskey in front of the man. Blue Teeth looked at the bottle. This is your best whiskey? It's what you came here for. The man's faux smile wavered for a moment before returning. Why, I think you may be right. The man drank the whiskey in one hit, grimacing in the aftermath. He pulled a pack of double happiness cigarettes from the inside pocket of his jacket and tapped one halfway out with a gloved finger, then removed it with his lips. His bodyguard lit the cigarette with a silver lighter. Any action in this part of town? asked the boss. George shrugged and moved back down the bar to continue wiping glasses. The man moved over three stools down so he was sitting in front of George again. That put him a seat away from Patty the Greek. There must be some local hangout, some little known establishment you people frequent. He took a drag on his smoke, eyes on George. They may have been bloodshot, but something sharp sparkled in there. The man continued. Dog fights or human fights, card games, women, opium dens, black-legged memory pins. George shook his head. No? 
We got slot machines and cheap gin, same as every other place. The man with blue teeth turned to Patty the Greek and said, What about you, champ? Patty the Greek rose from his stool without a word, drink in hand, and disappeared into the dusk between the slots. For an alcoholic, Patty had great instincts. The man poured himself another drink. I've got to say I'm a little disappointed. This place lacks vitality. It's eleven on a Thursday morning. The man stared at George's hands, resting on the bar. I've seen you before. He closed his eyes for ten long seconds. George's stomach twisted. The man would be searching his memory pin, pulling up old images, watching them against the back of his eyelids. Hard to see a way out of this one. Bluetooth opened his eyes again. Ah, yes, George Dunglingari. I watched a fight of you six years ago. George said nothing, started wiping down the bar counter. Made a bit of money on you, a nice return on investment. George kept wiping. Blue Teeth took another drag on his cigarette, blowing the smoke upwards in a thick cloud. I'm always on the lookout for good fighters. George knew who the man was now. Dan Hancock, second cousin of one of the CEOs out in the free zones. Practically royalty. I don't fight anymore. Hancock indicated the bar with a wave of his cigarette. No, you work in some anonymous dive in the wrong end of town. It's an honest living. Compared to fighting? Not really. No, compared to running fighters down at Free Zone 3. Ah, so you do recognize me, Dan Hancock said. He nodded at George. You're a hard man to read, I like that. You're easy, I like that. Really, Hancock said, and stamped out his cigarette in a nearby ashtray. What am I thinking now? You're thinking of a way to provoke me into fighting your man here, George said, indicating the bodyguard with his chin. Test out my skills. If I win, you're going to make me an offer you think I can't refuse. Dan Hancock raised his eyebrows. He pulled the cigarette pack out of his pocket, drew another one with his lips. Eyebrows still raised. Maybe too smart, though. I like that less. When fighting a bigger opponent, as a general rule, you'll lose. No matter what the movies say, fighting is largely a matter of physics. A difference in size can only be made up for with luck or a far superior skill level. George was not a small band by any means, six foot tall, lean and muscular, broad shoulders. He'd fought middleweight in his time. The problem was Hancock's man was a heavyweight. Upgraded. Hancock's man could inevitably have standard combat add-ons. Toughened bones, adrenaline spur, endorphin modulation, possibly nano-infused carbon joints in the shoulders, hips, and knees. If this man with the lantern jaw had any idea, he'd be able to crush George, and easily. But hired goons rarely had any idea. Hancock's man had turned in his chair to face George. He grinned, his still teeth gleaming red in the backwash of neon from a double happiness sign over the bar. Oh, you're alive, George said. I thought you were a hat stand. Then he turned to Hancock. This meat coat hanger the best you got? The goon snarled and grabbed George by the collar, pulling him forward. George slammed the flat of his hand into the man's throat. The goon's eyes widened. His face went red as he staggered backwards, big hands at his neck. Throat, knees, eyes. The three most vulnerable areas. The biggest man in the world couldn't keep fighting with one of those taken out. George leaped the bar in one smooth movement, landing lightly. The man put out his fist to block, but George kicked low with his right leg, smashing the side of the man's knee. The man wobbled, grimacing. 
his steel teeth flashing in the gloom. George kicked the knee again, hard. The man drew his leg up, grimacing in pain. Less than George had hoped. He'd hoped his opponent would be writhing on the stained polycrete floor by now. They circled each other. Six feet away sat an old woman with stringy gray hair, forgotten schooner of beer in one hand. The other pressed against the large button on the slot machine. She didn't even notice them. The man moved towards George, who maneuvered himself away until his back was pressed against one of the slots. George was lucky. This man was an idiot. The goon threw a punch hard enough to take George's head clean off. George ducked it easily, the man's hand smashing through the glass steel screen of the slot machine. The goon grunted as he pulled his bloodied mess of a fist from the slot, groaned as George punched him in the balls and went silent as he took the full force of a round kick to the temple. He fell awkwardly, head cracking hollowly on the floor. George rounded on Hancock. The boss man nodded, eyebrows up, as if to say impressive. He pulled another cigarette from the pack with his lips, speaking round it as he said, This trip down below hasn't been a waste after all. You're going to make a fine addition to my stable, George. George's chest heaved as he brought his breathing under control. There's two different ways for me to say no to you, Hancock. You're about to get the hard way. Come now, this can be lucrative for both. No need to get ugly. Ugly is all it ever is, George said, squaring his shoulders. I've worked for men like you all my life, soft-handed, entitled, looking right through people like me, invisible right up to the moment you want something from us. Hancock smiled. George, you're too sensitive. This is a business proposition. That's all. Mutually beneficial. George took a step towards him, fists clenched. Hancock held up a hand. His grin was gone. Listen, this is how it's going to be. We don't make a deal here. I'll go to the police and tell them you beat up my man here, unprovoked. He put a finger to the cochlear implant behind his left ear. My memory stream will be tweaked just enough so it looks like you started the fight. Man like you would get three years for something like that. He pointed at the shattered face of the slot. Double that for damage to private property. George growled. Gonna be hard to look through that memory pin with it torn out of your skull. Hancock laughed. Can you really be that ignorant? George's hands curled into fists as the man sneered at him and said, My memories aren't just stored here in my head. They're duplicated, backed up elsewhere. George eyed him, breathed in and out steadily. Then, for the first time since leaving his home that morning, he smiled. That's a relief. Doubt interfered with Hancock's sneer. How so? You've backed me into a corner. And that's a relief? Yes, liberating to be all out of choices. I can't see any way out of it. I can't see any path that doesn't end with me fighting for you in Free Zone 3. The self-assurance returned to Hancock's face. I said you were smart. Nah, mate. Not so smart at all. Hancock had a moment to register surprise as George's fist collided with his mouth, but only a moment. He sprawled against the bar, head snapping back as George followed up with the left-right left to the man's mouth, trying to bash out those blue-gleaming eternal teeth. I'm still here, sweetie. So many love tokens. Metal handcuffs to wear, sacks of sand for pillows. Punji sticks to scratch your back. Fire hoses to wash your face. How do we know which gift to send each other? And for how long till we get sated? I can fight. This is my country. Trung reached out and held her arm. 
fingers on the bare skin close to her shoulder. Yes, you can fight better than me. You're as brave as Dong Fei Tuan. You'll need to be to get our daughter away from here, where it's safe. Who knows if it's safe? He nodded at the landscape. The outlines of the world, revealed as the burnished orange line of the sun slouched over the horizon. At the ground pockmarked with craters and the lines of thin men and women clasping battered AK-47s, preparing to hop into faded green military transports. At the hundreds of once white refugee tents flapping in the morning ocean breeze. The morning breeze a relief against the heat, wet and suffocating that drowned them all. The heat that caused old men and women to collapse on the Ho Chi Minh Trail and dead bodies to swell like balloons. At the horizon where pyres of smoke stained the sky and where the bare earth, riven with gene scramblers, yielded not one grain of rice. This is no place for our beautiful girl, he said gently. Their daughter stood between them holding the hands of her parents. A small genetic fusion of their being linked them forever. There has to be another way, said Fung. Her eyes welled with tears. That's the price. I help older brother Tuan run people out of the south for a year to pay for your tickets, then six months more for mine. He's your friend. He should not do this. He's my friend, which is why I will help him. My price is half what he charges others. We've both acted properly. Fung was silent. She breathed out. Then talk with your daughter until we are to leave. Trung nodded and picked his daughter up. He was about to walk away when Fung said, But you'll follow us. You promise? I promise. Nothing can keep us apart, he replied. But there was a sadness in his eyes as he said the words, a sadness that twisted in Fung's chest. Trung turned and walked out slowly along the shore to show his daughter all of the boats clustered there. Smooth polycarbon, or wood, or painted iron hills gleaming as the morning rays struck them. Gleaming in the morning gloom. Gleaming with possibility, while the land behind remained in shadow. The breeze brought Nguyen's daughter back up the hill, happy in her father's arms. Fung waited until they were further along the shore before slumping down on the rough earth. She plunged her fingers into the dirt, watching Trung hold his daughter, watching them bathe in the morning light. She covered her eyes. Nguyen looked up in surprise as George burst into the room. She was standing in the kitchen frying some noodles on the pan. George rushed to where Kylie played on the carpet with her trains. Her little brow creased in concentration. He picked her up and hugged her against his chest, his face pressed into her unruly mop of dark hair. Kylie squirmed and giggled. Are you a monster? George kept hugging her. Kylie squirmed around so she could look at Nguyen. Mummy, Daddy Monster is getting me. George, is that blood on your hands? asked Nguyen. Mommy, is Daddy a monster? Nguyen stared at the scene, fearing what it meant. Knowing... She put down the noodles and walked over to them both. No, she said, and put her arms around them both. No. A pause then. Why is Daddy crying? Nguyen said nothing. George's shoulders shook. Mummy, why is Daddy crying? Nguyen grabbed George's chin, raised it from his daughter's hair so he was looking at her. Something was broken in there, behind his blurred eyes. They made me, he said. They're coming. She looked at him in silence for a few moments. How bad? 
Bad. Will they take you? The free zones. Ten years at least on a debtor's contract. They'll make me fight again. She put her hand on his wet cheek, silent for a long half-minute. Then fight. They held each other, and George whispered to his daughter. Kylie stopped wriggling after a while and instead gripped her father tighter. Little arms clasped around his neck. He whispered to Nguyen also, forehead pressed against hers. She closed her eyes and said, You too. And I know. And always. A few minutes later, the internal security communication system crackled into life, and a disembodied voice echoed through all the apartments in the dugout. Resident George Dulangari, we have a warrant for your arrest. Present yourself up top immediately, or we will enter and take you by force. George whispered to Nguyen to close the door behind him, and then, loudly into the room, he said, I'm coming out. It didn't matter. They fired tear gas down into the corridors. George pulled up the bottom of his shirt covering his mouth. His eyes stung and his lungs burned. He left the apartment and walked through the clouds of yellow gas. As he ascended the stairs and walked out into the baking hot, still afternoon, all around were black-masked security personnel, waiting. There he was, just a silhouette to them against the gas, just a silhouette rising from the earth. Not a man, a silhouette. George broke the leg of the first man that came at him, the second he struck under the chin guard of the helmet in the throat, the third he drove into the fourth that came at him, causing the force rod of the third to discharge into the chest of the fourth. The others, they stood back then, hesitant, looking at each other, waiting for someone else to go in first. George laughed. The silhouette, he laughed at them all. They shot him with pulse rifles, crackling blue lines intersecting with George's head and chest, arcs of electricity playing over his body, his teeth. George fell to the ground in spasms, thrashing against the current coursing through his system. As he lost consciousness, his throat choked with electricity. He still laughed. Lastly, I'll give you a tear gas grenade, a tear gland for this modern epoch. A type of tear neither sad nor happy, drenching my face as I wait. Trenzatu, Saigon, 1964 Fung gave her daughter the letter. Nguyen looked into her mother's face, lined and weathered, though all emotion had been baked out by unrelenting sun of her new country. It gave nothing away as she stood watching her daughter. Nguyen opened the envelope, it read, Some rich prick dropped these. Get a place down in Freo. See you in ten. Always, always. George. Something rattled in the envelope. Nguyen tipped the contents into her hand. Four teeth rolled out into her palm. Shimmering blue, perfect. Each seemed to glow with its own inner light. Nguyen made fists with her hands. Scrunching the letter in one hand, the teeth in the other, pressing them into her palm. She looked down at her daughter playing with the trains again. Nearby, the overturned sofa slashed open, its stuffing pulled out. Her tomato plants had been torn from their pots, the contents of every cupboard in the kitchen emptied under the floor. The police had turned her apartment upside down after the case had been completed, looking for anything that could be sold off to pay for their debts. They'd taken the second-hand hollow unit, the ivory flute Nguyen had been given when she was very young, 
even George's trophies. They cleaned out and closed down their bank accounts as well, but it wasn't much. George had known what would happen, that's why he had gone to his mother with the envelope. Kylie played in the middle of it all, oblivious. Nguyen's eyes glistened, but she did not cry. She never cried. Her mother had taught her that. Fung put her hand on her daughter's arm. You will survive this, she said, in Vietnamese. What do you care? said Nguyen, replying in Vietnamese, emotion straining her voice. You didn't like George. You barely talked to him all the years we were together. You wouldn't even look at him. Nguyen turned from her mother, gave her her back. Fung mumbled something behind her. Nguyen sighed. What? Fung cleared her throat. I said, that's not true. Oh, daughter, that's so far from the truth. Nguyen turned her back slowly on her mother. What do you mean? Her mother never talked much, never said much more than a sentence, except if it was about food, but now the words poured out quickly. You won't remember your father, but he was the same as George in so many ways. The same flawed courage, a manhood that stared inwards, and a love for you, my daughter, larger than the sun. Fung took a step forward and grasped her daughter's hands. She blinked slowly, and the shadow of sorrow passed over her face. Too many memories. It hurt to see you two, and feel the weight of that memory. Nguyen was too drained to question. She just held her mother's hands for a time, before turning to Kylie. We've got to go now, darling. Pack up your trains. Kylie ran her train over the floor, smiling. Where are we going? Our new home. Is Daddy coming? Yes, she said, the word catching in her throat. No, no, not yet. But he will. He's going to come, I promise. Kylie looked up. Promise? I promise. Nothing will keep us apart. How about that? Thank you very much, T.R. Napper and Jonathan. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Oh, man. Production and everything. Fantastic. Like I say, that, sto- that story was in Interzone as well. A fine science fiction magazine. Just looking, look out for T.R. Napper. Some great stories out there. And like I say, I'm just discovering now. So brilliant. Thank you so much. More, 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 please. So we get on to the final part of the show. Yeah, it's not final. It's just it's building to the crescendo with our Amy H. Sturgis. This is part two of the Star Trek Authorian legend little talk she did. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back on genre history. In my last segment, I began my tribute to the 50th anniversary of Star Trek by sharing some of the ideas from my early article, The Sword in the Starship, which was published in Wine Dark Sea. In that work, I argued that in a way we can think of Star Trek as the new Arthurian legend, and I drew parallels between the heroic triumvirate structure of Arthurian lore and both Star Trek, the original series, and later Enterprise, and the round table motif and the style of storytelling from Star Trek The Next Generation. 
And now I would like to move forward and talk particularly about Deep Space Nine and Voyager and also sort of wrap up my comments about Arthuriana and Star Trek in general. Although the legends of Arthur originated in the oral traditions of Wales, Cornwall, and Brittany, lands rich with Celtic inspiration, they took on a distinctively Christian flavor as the faith spread west. This fusion may be best represented by the Arthurian incorporation of the biblical figure of Joseph of Arimathea. The New Testament says that Joseph used his own tomb for the burial of Christ after the crucifixion, and legend has it that Joseph also possessed the Holy Grail, the cup from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper. Now, William of Malmesbury places Joseph in Britain, and that matches Gallic legend of Joseph traveling through France, along with Mary Magdalene, Lazarus, Martha, and others. The 13th century romance Son de Nocet, and I apologize to all of you who are cringing due to my pronunciation there, draws Joseph directly into the Arthurian cycle. According to this tale, Joseph drives the Saracens from Norway, and he marries the daughter of a pagan ruler. He becomes the Fisher King, a wounded man ruling a cursed kingdom until he and his lands are eventually restored by a knight. He also lives in such works as the quest and histoire of the Vulgate cycle, and in a host of Arthurian texts thereafter. In this way, a Christian formula of sin and redemption, prophecy and fulfillment, meets the Arthurian cast of characters. Arthur himself, then, is not merely a great general and king, he's the chosen of God, the one through whom miracles become reality. So if Star Trek The Next Generation illumines the image of the round table, then it is Star Trek Deep Space Nine which takes the Arthurian parallel a step further by addressing the modern intersection of the secular and the religious. In Deep Space Nine, you have Captain Sisko, the human in charge of space station Deep Space Nine, discovering that he is considered to be the emissary, the long-awaited visionary and saint by the Bajoran people who inhabit the station and the nearby planet. As with the Christian interpretation of Arthur, then, a man becomes both a military and religious leader, whose words carry the dual weight of command and prophecy. Fascinating stuff, I think. It's an uneasy juxtaposition of statecraft and spirituality. And this offers Deep Space Nine some of the most fascinating conflicts, I think, found in any Star Trek. Take the series premiere Emissary, for example. You had the spiritual leader of the Bajorans, Kai Opaka, a kind of Joseph of Arimathea link between the Bajoran religion and the Federation presence at the nearby space station. She announces that Captain Sisko is, in fact, the prophesied emissary, the one who would deliver the war-torn planet and its people. Sisko very uneasily agrees to accept this role, not quite a believer, and yet aware of the good he could do for the Bajorans if given this credibility with them. In the episode Starship Down, Sisko is injured during a mission, and his first officer, the Bajoran believer named Major Kira Nerys, seems to pray both for him and to him. To put it another way, the line between his role as her commanding officer and his place as the prophesied savior of her people, dissolves. As the series progresses, Sisko struggles with this dual role. 
sometimes, as in the episode Accession, questioning his calling, and other times, as in the episode Rapture, embracing his duty as emissary and receiving mystic visions of the future while in a trance-like state. The infusion of apocalyptic language and messianic imagery contrasts with the experience of uncertainty and self-doubt. Perhaps Deep Space Nine, like no other Star Trek, reflects the reason Lynette Muir believes Arthur and Star Trek both continue to speak to audiences. Quote, the characters in these golden ages were not gods or supermen, but human beings with human failings, despite their heroic stature. End quote. If, as I would argue, the original series and Enterprise evoke the Arthurian triumvirate, the next generation, the Round Table, and Deep Space Nine, Joseph of Arimathea, then Star Trek Voyager remembers the grail quest of Arthurian romance. Both groups of weary travelers search for the one answer that will send them home. The Knights of Camelot must restore the kingdom with the legendary Holy Grail. The officers of Voyager must restore themselves to the Alpha Quadrant with elusive alien technology. Both intrepid bands find adventure along the way, but ultimately they are seeking their own salvation. I think the parallels are pretty striking. Like the fallen Lancelot, half mad with his own sin, you've got Lieutenant Tom Paris, a convict haunted by his responsibility for the death of former shipmates. Like the virginal Percival, or Peridur, young Ensign Harry Kim is fresh from the Academy, offering naive virtue and a pure desire to return to what is lost. And like Arthur, caught between hope for his kingdom and grief for his men's sacrifices, and doomed to all-too-human loneliness, you've got Captain Catherine Janeway, finding herself unwillingly cast as the leader of the displaced band of officers. And in Voyager, as in the quest texts from Chrétien de Troy to the present, the lessons learned along the way prove more profound than any successful quest resolution possibly could be. I think these incarnations of Star Trek shed light on different aspects of the Arthurian tradition, but they also share with Arthuriana an overarching need for the fantastic. In the post-Enlightenment 20th and 21st century, however, Star Trek does with technology what Camelot did with magic. Lunette's magical invisibility ring in Yvain is replaced with the Romulan's cloaking device in Balance of Terror. The Green Giant's transformation from Lord to Monster in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, accomplished by magic, is replaced by Commander Data's transformation from near-robot to near-human, accomplished by an emotion chip in Star Trek Generations. Merlin's knowledge of the future, gained as he magically lives backwards in Camelot, is replaced by Kirk and crew's knowledge of the past, gained as they time-travel in a starship in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. The parallels could just go on and on, I think. Merlin, the miracle worker of magic, serves the same stylistic need as engineer Montgomery Scott, the miracle worker of technology. The effect ultimately is the same. As Arthur C. Clarke has observed, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, after all. Most intriguing, I think, is that fans of Star Trek across the years have drawn explicit comparisons between Arthuriana and the television series they love. Many works of fan fiction take Star Trek figures through Arthurian romances. 
To use classic Star Trek fandom as an example, Beverly C. Zook's The Honorable Sacrifice fanzine has a disgraced and court-martialed McCoy undertake a pilgrimage on a feudalistic world as a knight. At the story's end, a redeemed McCoy returns to the Enterprise dressed in armor, bearing a sword. The delighted Mr. Scott, sensing the change in his friend, declares that he looks like a flaming saint in his Arthurian apparel. In Gloria Fry's fanzine, Book of Prophecy, the Enterprise officers visit a world reminiscent of medieval Europe. And there they fulfill a prophecy by becoming a chivalric fellowship that saves the realm. And here I quote, with my own asides, Seven travel through the void to rid the land of fear. The noble king of daring deed, Kirk. The halfling prince of warrior seed, Spock. The healer who can cure all ill, McCoy. The Ebon queen whose voice doth thrill, Uhura. The caring one with hair of gold, Chapel. The dashing swordsman brave and bold, Sulu. The callow youth with piercing eyes, Chekhov. Intrepid heroes, fair and wise, these are the saviors from beyond who go where danger lies, to cleanse the land from evil's grasp, and end our anguished cries. End quote. Now, other stories, fan stories, make the connection explicit. The circuit piece, The Once and the Future, has Kirk and Spock test experimental recreational technology, that is, the early version of the holodeck by stepping into an interactive holographic experience based on the story Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Morgan Le Fay abducts Scotty, saying, You are to him, Kirk, what Merlin is to Arthur. And Holly Trueblood's fanzine Full Circle finds Spock the victim of a shuttle mishap and transported to the historical Camelot. Spock lives a number of years among the Britons, and when he returns to his own time, Ambassador Sarek of Vulcan shares with his son what he knows of the period in which Spock has lived. Quote, Merlin, it was said, was a man who could cast spells and predict the future. He was sometimes reputed as being able to move from one time to another. Early stories about Merlin suggest that he was only half-human, his father being some sort of otherworldly demon. Spock glanced up at his father appraisingly, end quote. So by making one individual a character in both universes, Spock is Merlin here, and Merlin is Spock, Trueblood combines the two storylines into one seamless meta-myth. So the two legends remain, I would say, in dialogue with one another, expanding and exploring their themes in tandem, drawing more fans and followers into their participatory cultures in the process. Each of the incarnations of Star Trek speak to specific aspects of Arthuriana, and all together share overarching structures and messages with the Arthurian cycle. In fact, we could go so far as saying that one is the intellectual child of the other. I think in future years it will be fascinating to see how the new Star Trek film series fits into this larger framework. All in all, here in its 50th anniversary year, I'd like to suggest in a celebratory kind of way that perhaps the Federation is the new Britain, perhaps Captain Catherine Janeway is the once and future king, or perhaps one of her fellow captains fits that bill, or perhaps all of them do. And perhaps Time magazine was right when it hailed the fledgling television series Star Trek as the Cosmic Camelot.
Thank you for joining me as I revisit some of my early work on Star Trek, and as I also share my deep and abiding love of the franchise with you. I hope you live long and prosper, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another look back on genre history. Thank you. There you go. Big thank you to Ames. Ames, what a star. Big hugs. Big bear hug there. Thank you so much. And I was talking to Amy the other day. Backwards and forwards of emails. Actually, just remind us. You don't mean how to kind of put things in and all that. I keep forgetting that Amy's actually got stuff to, to put on the show. But Amy was talking. And she's got something in the pipeline, which sounds fascinating. And she was just wondering, you know, this, this idea she's got, she wanted to kind of maybe break it up into a few sections. And I thought, oh, it's so good. We'll just play it as one big whole thing. So that's all I'm saying at the moment, but it, it does sound excellent. So I'm looking forward to kind of what Amy's going to bring up. And, you know, I know about it, but I'm just, you know, it will be rather special and rather exciting. Until then. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have, man. It's a blast, man, doing this show. Honestly, do you know what I mean? If I could do this full time, you know, talking to Jeffrey Landers about all that nonsense. Do you know what I mean? Just fantastic. Listen to that story and then wrap it up with Amy. That's a that's a fantastic job, man. Do you know what I mean? Just as a note, mind you, as a note, do you know what I mean? There's been well, actually loads of dropping out on kind of the donations and everything like that for one thing or another. Do you know what I mean? Times are, I guess, tight. So if you do fancy, do you know what I mean? You can just kind of donate the normal old style way, just a one-off donation. Yes, I'm rattling this drum there now, but you know, it just we've had a few drop out, and it's kind of just you know, oh dear me, oh oh god. So you can just donate a one-off donation, or you can come over the site monthly donation there, join up that way, or you can go if you want to support the other shows as well through Patreon. That is, do you know what I mean, the way to kind of help out monthly donations just keeps his rocking and keeps it putting out shows like this. Think about it, if you don't mind. That would be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of presentation has been brought to you by the district of wonders network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction you can learn more about the district of wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com thank you for listening